Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. Please follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Reparations in Action is the weekly program of white people who stand in organized solidarity with African liberation and reparations to African people. I'm your host. My name is Jamie Simpson. I want to begin, as always, by saluting the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, the African Socialist International, and the Uhuru Movement, Chairman Omalia Shetela of the African People's Socialist Party, the leader of the African liberation movement under the leadership of the African working class for over 50 years. We'd also like to salute the African People's Solidarity Committee, the cadre organization of white people working directly under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party who unite with reparations. And we'd like to thank this radio station, Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg, Florida for giving us this hour every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time to bring the message of solidarity with African liberation and reparations uh, to any white people who might be listening. We'd like to also thank the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the incredible nonprofit organization whose mission statement is to address the grave disparities in human rights, economic development, health, education, and health care faced by the African or black community. And uh, just like to reiterate that we acknowledge that this is a this is Black Power ninety six point three, a Black community radio station. We are white people addressing other white people who may be listening, because we want you to know that there is a place for you in the African liberation movement, working inside the white community, struggling for Black power for African liberation. If you can unite with reparations. So for today's show, we want to go over some of the top headlines of this era, the top headlines of the colonial virus or the coronavirus period and pandemic. First of all, we want to discuss the thwarted U.S.-backed invasion of Venezuela and all of its implications. Next, we will be talking about COVID-19 and the accusations by the United States government that China created this virus, created the coronavirus in a laboratory. And finally, we will close with an interview with attorney Steve Hanlon, one of the for foremost attorneys who represented the surviving victims of the lynching massacre that happened in 1923 in Rosewood, Florida. Thank you for joining us today on Reparations in Action. We turn now to the COVID-19 pandemic and the accusations against China. The spread of the colonial virus known as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 continues to ravage the African community inside U.S. borders, as well as the indigenous population on the concentration camps euphemistically known as reservations. The U.S. President Donald Trump presses for states to reopen their economies. His, his administration is privately predicting the daily death toll will reach about 3,000 by June 1st, according to an internal document obtained by the New York Times, nearly double the current number of about 1,750. These projections, based on government modeling pulled together in chart form by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, forecast about 200,000 new cases each day by the end of the month, up from about 25,000 cases a day currently. On Sunday, Mr. Trump said, 
deaths in the United States could reach 100,000, twice as many as he had forecast just two weeks ago. At the same time, as more and more information has come to light corroborating the assertion put forward by China, Iran, Russia, and the African People's Socialist Party that the COVID-19 was developed as a U.S. biological weapon, the U.S. government is going out of its way to shift responsibility for the rising death rate in the U.S. onto the Chinese Communist Party, blaming China for allegedly misleading the U.S. as to the severity of the coronavirus and stating, as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did yesterday, that the coronavirus was developed in a Chinese laboratory. At one point, Trump was referring to coronavirus as, quote, the Chinese virus. We turn now to Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, for commentary on this. Uhuru. Welcome to Reparations in Action. Uhuru, Jesse. Thank you. Glad to be here, Jamie, as always. Glad to have you back on. Could you um, speak to us about this situation? What is your response to the U.S. government's accusation that China is responsible for coronavirus and should be held accountable for it, even financially? Uhuru, Jamie. Well, I just want to thank you and Reparations in Action and salute the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman Amalia Shatella, who, who gave the, the name the colonial virus and uh, really from day one really made clear that, as he said, that when it comes to African people, that coronavirus is not a medical problem, it's a political problem, that the skyrocketing death rate faced by the African population, which is way disproportionately higher than what the white community is experiencing, is not because of some medical deficiency on the part of African people or some uh, genetic issue or something like that. It is a, a political problem of a lack of political and economic power, of a forced denial of political and economic power of African people by the colonial system that was built on their, at their expense that was built through the enslavement and oppression of African people. And I really wanna salute the people's war strategy that Chairman Amalia Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party have set into motion worldwide to really fill the void of absolute um, lack of leadership, failure of leadership, incompetence um, at, at best, uh, you know, demonstrated by the US government. In the absence of any meaningful leadership coming from the US government, the, the African people's government in the form of the people's war under the leadership of the African working class has filled the void and really um, you know, come in and, and provided the leadership that African people and even us white people are looking for in this time. Um, not only in terms of how to keep yourself safe, how to protect yourself, how to build your immune system, uh, things like that, which the uh, People's War Medical Commission has been putting forward, but even how to understand it politically, because everybody on all sides is politicizing the coronavirus pandemic uh, to their own agenda. And the only one who has been able to see it clearly for what it really is, has been the African People's Socialist Party and specifically Chairman Omalia Shatella. And um, as with, with regards to the US government accusing China of creating coronavirus as a bioweapon, against the United States, um, it kind of reminds me of just a few weeks ago when the United States government, and actually it was, it was Mike Pompeo, did a press conference to charge 
the Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, with uh, narco-terrorism charges. And mm -hmm. they said that Maduro was guilty of uh, involving himself with, with uh, forces who were trafficking cocaine into the United States in order to deliberately cause harm and injury to people inside the United States. Does that sound familiar to you, Jamie? It, it does. It sounds like, like the M.O. Of, of imperialism. And, you know, just with respect to, to, to the coronavirus, I, I know we're going we're gonna to circle back around in this, yeah. in this episode of Reparations in Action to talk about the outrageous actions on, on the part of the U.S. government towards Venezuela. Yes. But uh, with, with respect to the, to the coronavirus, the, the complete at least 180 that, that we've seen the U.S. government take on this. Because it, at the beginning, it was all about the bats, wasn't it? It right. was all about wildlife and, and wet markets. And even as recently as, as last week, um, before we heard Pompeo just coming out and, and, and directly saying that this is a biological weapon made in a laboratory by China, um, they, they were still taking China to task on uh, news outlets like the BBC over the wet markets right. and uh, po pointing the finger at China still, uh, but sort of um, agreeing to not mention the biological weapon aspect of this and uh, trying to get a, a Chinese ambassador to apologize to the world for the coronavirus. And I, I thought that was just preposterous. I, I couldn't even, even my, my 10 year old daughter was flabbergasted that this was happening. And the Chinese ambassador responded, we are not the source or the origin of this virus. China is the victim of this virus. And that, that reminded me a lot of the way that this country is acting towards African people. The, the, the way that they're targeting African people during this pandemic. Um, the way that we see states reopening in, in a way that is going to be lethal, particularly to African people, as it's already been lethal to African people. And I guess I'm saying this because I, I want to understand myself and I want our listeners to understand better this concept of why we're calling the coronavirus a colonial virus. Yeah. Chair Jesse, could you speak to that question and could you address it in particular? I know there are a lot of people who reject this idea that this is a, a colonial virus because they, we also see that white people are dying from this as well. That this, that this is something that, that is a, a medical reality at the same time that it's a colonial virus. So could you speak to that question of why it is a colonial virus? Absolutely. And, and just back to the China thing for one second. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that Trump and people, you know, U.S. Um, patriots are actually raising up the demand for reparations, Jamie, from China, okay, to America for coronavirus. And wow. the state of Missouri is actually suing China for like some insane amount of money. I think it's like trillions of dollars, perhaps. Um, I have to double check that. But uh, for allegedly misleading the world um, on, you know, the nature of, of coronavirus. And it's so backwards. I mean, first of all, the United States, like, they don't want to have any conversation about reparations owed to African people for the long, long ongoing history of colonialism, slavery, genocide, and biological warfare. They want to talk about reparations from China, but not to mention the fact that 
I think the United States owes reparations to African people also for coronavirus, among all of yes. the other things that we've listed. So if anybody owes reparations for coronavirus, it's the United States. And as far as the whole question of a colonial virus, I think that is extremely important to understand because yes, it is true that more African people are dying from this than white people. Yes, it is true that um, African, the rate of African people who are gonna end up hospitalized is higher. Yes, it is true as Penny Hess talked about last week that um, during the time in New York when they were giving orders to medical workers to, take, to, to not uh, resuscitate people and basically to let people die, that they did that during the time when the rate of hospitalizations of Africans peaked and then they only called it off when that started to possibly taper off. Like they experimented on Africans. And yes, it is true that there is a growing understanding and a growing consciousness that the governor of Georgia um, is clearly so um, eager to rush the Georgian economy back into operation because only, it's mainly Africans who are dying there. And there have been African barbers and African mayors and African uh, activists who have come out and said that this is basically, they just are trying to wipe out the African population in Georgia. And they're actually refusing to carry out his orders to reopen things. There have actually been barber shops that are owned by Africans that have said, no, we're going to stay shut down because this is killing us. So this is all true. And sometimes white people will will say well but you know my my cousin is an, is a doctor and he he is colorblind he doesn't have anything bad in his heart towards african people or or they'll say but this is also happening to white people so how can you say it's a colonial virus and um the point is not that the virus itself has some kind of you know, features within its genome or whatever, where it only targets people of a certain nationality. As far as we know, we don't know that for a fact, but as far as we know, that's not what makes it a colonial virus. What makes it a colonial virus is the fact that it is being, uh, un it has been unleashed in the context, in the social and economic context of a colonial system in which one population has the means to quarantine has the means to get at, to get testing when they need it has the means to you know basically address their health needs at the expense of another population whose ability to do that has been taken from them so the lethal effect of the virus is amplified a hundredfold when combined with the conditions of colonial oppression that have been imposed on african people and the fact that there are some medical workers who are quote unquote not racist has nothing to do with it. That's like saying that, well, there are some cops who are nice people. And that doesn't change the fact that they function as a part of a colonial state. The colonial state operates the way it does, no matter what is in the hearts and minds of the people wearing the badge carrying out its will. The colonial state is there to enforce the system of haves and have-nots, especially when those who have have what they have at the expense of stealing everything from those who have not. And the same goes for the prison system. There are white people in prison. So yes, the prison system affects white people too, but that doesn't change the fact that it is primarily a colonial prison system. It is primarily 
uh, an instrument of colonial genocide against African people. And the same is true of coronavirus. So it's really, really important to, to understand that. And it's just really clear that there would not be white people protesting for the right to go back to work and get a haircut if, if white people were disproportionately dying from COVID-19. It is a right. colonial virus. Uhuru. I really appreciate that, Jesse. I think it's, <clears throat> I really appreciate this analysis coming from Chairman Amalia Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party um, through African internationalism that the, the enemy here, the, the problem here is colonialism, not racism. Right. That there's a, a distinction between a colonial system of oppression that sets up one population to live at the expense of an entire other population of, of human beings who uh, have to have to live a genocidal life of, of subservience and, and oppression. That's, that's something that's difficult for us when we're inside that same society, that same population, to make that statement and then go ahead and live with ourselves. It's, it's difficult to unlearn that dichotomy of, well, that's a, that's a racist action, that's a non-racist action, which as has been said, is, is a self-defeating exercise. It's like fighting smoke. There's, there's no way to tell when you've uh, purged someone of racist thoughts or emotions or tendencies. But there is a way to tell when colonialism has died, when colonialism has been defeated and people have um, self-determination once again. So I, I just wanted to say I, I really appreciate that and I really appreciate your, your leadership around this question. For real. Well, I, I appreciate um, Chairman Omalia Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party for summing this question up from day one and for all of the incredible articles and analysis that have been published on theburningsphere.com. And I encourage people to go there, read the articles, read about the similarities between SARS-CoV-2 and HIV, read about biowarfare and the history of American biowarfare against African and other colonized peoples from the very dawn of parasitic capitalism through the enslavement of African people and genocide against the indigenous people. Uh, read about the people's war, read about the work that the party's doing to build the capacity of African people to not just survive this pandemic, but to come out of it stronger and, and you know, even further down the road towards national liberation and self-determination. So. Um, this is really an important time for white people to get active, to get involved. You know, people are looking for things to do during your quarantine. Well, join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Get active in the fight for reparations to African people. This is our struggle. This is our revolution. It's not a sideline thing where we are cheering on those people over there and their fight for justice. We are a part right. of it. We have a role in it. We are a front of the people's war. And right now, our front is setting its sights on Wall Street, the capitalist ruling elite. We are demanding that they pay reparations to the Black Power Blueprint. People can check out blackpowerblueprint.org to see where we are calling for these Wall Street bankers, these pandemic profiteers to direct their resources as reparations to the African community. It's, it's such an impressive strategy to uh go after the ruling class right now, especially with this most recent development that you're summing up 
that the U.S. has had the audacity to ask for reparations from China over the coronavirus uh, with the, the allegation that, that, it, the, that it originated in a lab in China, which I don't believe the truth of that. But the, to say that, to put that out there on the part of the United States, it seems to me that they've made themselves somewhat vulnerable to the demand for reparations. What, what, what a time to demand reparations from this imperialist ruling class. The following was reported by Venezuela Analysis article published on May 4th, 2020. Venezuelan authorities announced they routed an armed group attempting to land on Venezuelan shores on Sunday. The incident reportedly took place in the early morning hours with armed men on speedboats approaching coastal La Guara State, just north of Caracas. A group of terrorist mercenaries organized and trained in Colombia tried to disembark with war material off the coast of Laguaria, a statement released by Bolivarian National Armed Forces read. The statement detailed that intelligence work as well as defense exercises allowed the Bolivarian National Armed Forces and police units to respond immediately. In the ensuing confrontation, eight members of the paramilitary group were killed. The FANB added, and two were arrested. There are no reports of casualties on the Venezuelan side. The operation also resulted in the apprehension of military gear and weapons allegedly matching equipment stolen in the field April 30th, 2019. Military pooch. The armed forces likewise revealed that divers are currently being deployed to recover additional weapons and that Navy ships are patrolling the coastline in search of other vessels involved in the incursion. The Bolivarian National Armed Forces categorically rejects these irrational acts of violence, the statement went on to say. Speaking to the, to the press on Sunday, Interior Minister Nestor Rivero and Defense Minister Vladimir Padrino Lopez said that the defense operation was ongoing and there could be further arrests in the coming days. Padrino also announced that a new set of Bolivarian shield military ex exercises will begin immediately on orders of President Nicolas Maduro. For his part, National Constituent Assembly President Disodado Cabello divulged that weapons had been seized on land, including vehicles fitted with machine guns. The location of the equipment was not disclosed. He also claimed that the boat's GPS trackers indicated they had departed from Colombia. Sunday's failed incursion came on the heels of an Associated Press report revealing that former U.S. Special Operations soldier Jordan Gordreau had played a leading role in a plan to invade Venezuela led by retired Venezuelan Major General Cliver Alcala. Guadro was responsible for training a contingent of 300 Venezuelan army deserters who were to enter Venezuela in a heavily armed caravan and seize the capital within 96 hours. The African People's Socialist Party held a live stream earlier today to denounce these U.S.-backed imperialist invasions of Venezuela. We turn now to a clip of Chairman Omalia Chatella, leader of the Uhuru movement. I want to restate the unconditional solidarity by our party uh, with the people 
uh, of Venezuela uh, and the government of uh, uh, Compañero uh, Nicolas Maduro. It is unconditional. And we uh, recognize that some people may see uh, the recent military incursion uh, by thugs uh, from Colombia as uh, some demonstration of strength uh, by uh, the U.S. government and by uh, the puppet uh, Colombian, um, its puppet colonial minions. We recognize that what we see uh, with this incursion is desperation on the part of a shaky uh, imperialist system and a shaky uh, world hegemon in the form of the United States government. Where the strength is, is in Venezuela, among the people. Uh, the strength is, is with the government of Nicolas Maduro. That's why the US government finds itself having to attack the, uh, Venezuela uh, and Compañero uh, Maduro because of its strength, because of the significance of that movement uh, toward socialism, toward uh, total independence, toward uh, uni uniting uh, the peoples of South America and the oppressed peoples of the world toward uh, removing uh, from uh, control and domination by US uh, and world imperialism, uh, that is where the strength is because that is a movement toward the future. Uh, and the US and the Colombian government are trying to hold back the future. They represent the past. And we experience, we recognize in the African People's Socialist Party that there is currently an unequal equilibrium uh, that the world is confronted with. It's a contest between the past uh, and the future. And the past is the past of imperialist domination. It's in past is the past of US uh, government as being the big hegemon, being able to order uh, the world, control the world, steal our resources uh, without, with impunity. And the future is the rising tide of resistance of the peoples of the world to end that relationship and to negate the power of capitalism and colonialism, replacing it with the socialist project that we see with the Bolivarian uh, project uh, in Venezuela and the struggles that the African People's Socialist Party uh, is, uh, is waging uh, throughout the world. So uh, we stand in solidarity, unequivocal solidarity and we also uh, condemn the puppet uh, regime of, uh, in Colombia uh, that uh, finds itself uh, shamefully uh, at the feet of uh, US imperialism, like lapdogs, uh, like gusanos, like worms, uh, that cannot stand up uh, for the people of Colombia and fight for the interests of Colombia because it would mean fighting against the interests of US imperialism uh, that continues to suck the blood of the people of Colombia and other peoples around the world. And we, we uh, condemn uh, that government for uh, what uh, its stance is in terms of attacking uh, the freedom movement, not only of people in, in Venezuela, but also for the people of Colombia. We uh, call on all the peoples of the world, all the African people everywhere, uh, to stand in solidarity with the government of uh, Nicolas uh, Maduro, the people of uh, Venezuela, uh, and, and we also uh, say that uh, especially uh, the people uh, of Colombia uh, should stand, uh, uh, should desert uh, the quizzling, the a puppet regime, the shameful regime that would find itself crawling on its belly uh, uh, before the feet of US imperialism. We call on the people of Colombia, especially the workers there, to rise up 
uh, against that regime, to rise up in opposition to uh, what the Colombian uh, military, uh, uh, Colombian government uh, is doing, and to repudiate uh, with your action the act the, what the U.S. what uh, Colum uh, Colombia has thus done uh, as a minion of U.S. imperialism. We are also aware that our responsibility as African revolutionaries, as the advanced attachment of the African working class around the world, it is our responsibility to open up new fronts of struggle, uh, to make it necessary for the US imperialism to have to defend itself all over the world. It is our weakness and we recognize this. It's a self-criticism as a revolutionary movement that allows the US government to use minions like Colombia or to itself participate in attacking the people of Venezuela to uh, put sanctions on them, to steal the resources of the people of Venezuela, to starve the people, to deprive the people of the kinds of protection that they need uh, from this uh, colonial virus that's known as COVID-19. We recognize our weakness here and we know that it is not enough simply to sympathize and we are working every day to build a revolutionary response to the existence of imperialism that moves us closer uh, to ending this foul social system called capitalism that came into being as a consequence of slavery and genocide of Africans and other oppressed peoples around the world and especially peoples of the Americas. So that's, that is what we recognize our task as being. And so we are self-critical. But in the meantime, uh, and we are self-critical because we know that the, the Venezuelan government will be receiving uh, 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 stances and statements of support from all kinds of sources. But we believe that Che Guevara was absolutely correct when he said that it's, solidarity is not just about a well-wishing, but it is sharing the same fate in victory, whether in victory or in death. And that's what we uh, find ourselves doing, struggling to share the same fate, struggling uh, to push the struggle of oppressed peoples and particularly Africans and the workers of the world, struggling to put us into a position where we can make an actual contest with U.S. imperialism. That was Chairman Omalia Chatella. Now we hear a clip of Penny Hess, Chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee. We join in total unity with the profound statement of the African People's Socialist Party that was given by Chairman Omalia Shatella, who is our leadership. We salute Secretary General Louise Kinshasa and Bahamas Party Chairman Alex Morley. So from the African People's Solidarity Committee, we stand in, in profound and unconditional solidarity with the people of Venezuela and their president, Nicolas Maduro. We join in unity with the African People's Socialist Party in denouncing and condemning the latest imperialist military assault on Venezuela by the US government and its vile mercenaries and lackeys. And we uphold the right of the people of Venezuela and all oppressed and colonized peoples to be free and self-determining. We also strongly denounce all of the US covert and overt military attacks, as well as economic and political warfare being waged against the people of Venezuela, including sanctions, theft, and freezing of their resources and assets and manipulation of oil prices that have plunged Venezuela into poverty and starvation. We join in saluting the stance of the people and government of Venezuela, and we uphold that. This stance has been in place since the time 
of the late President Hugo Chavez to put the financial and material resources of the country into the service of the impoverished and working people and not for parasitic capitalist profits. We salute the internationalist stance of Venezuela that joins in solidarity with Cuba and other oppressed nations and peoples and that stands for self-determination, self-government and power in the hands of the working class. As the organization of white people strategically formed by the African People's Socialist Party to represent the interests of the African working class on the pedestal of parasitic capitalism inside of white society, we unite with the African revolution, the right of African and all oppressed and colonized people to be free and liberated. The African People's Solidarity Committee organizes for reparations to African people from the white population based on the understanding that all white people sit on the pedestal of slavery, genocide, and the colonization of the majority of the world. We recognize that African and indigenous people face colonialism inside these stolen borders of the United States. We believe the stand of reparations from white people takes responsibility to do our role, to play our role in weakening the ability of US and parasitic capitalist system to have power over the people on the planet Earth, and that this system has been shaken by the resistance of African and oppressed peoples here and around the world. So we call on all white people, all freedom-loving people everywhere to join in denouncing and condemning US imperialism in every form around the world and inside this country. And we call on you to join the call of the African People's Socialist Party to defend the people and the government of Venezuela and to take a stand for reparations to African people. Victory to the people of Venezuela, victory to the African revolution, down with US imperialism. Join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement at uhurusolidarity.org. Reparations now, Uhuru. And now we turn to our interview with attorney Steve Hanlon, one of the foremost attorneys representing the victims of the Rosewood lynchings of 1923. To give a picture of this, we're going to read as reported by The Guardian. Where Rosewood once stood is now little more than a rural scrubland along State Road 24, a lonely highway in central Florida bordered by swamp, slash pine, and palmetto. A placard on the side of the road describes the horror visited upon the hamlet. But in 1923, the settlement was a small and prosperous, predominantly black town with its own baseball team, a Masonic temple, and a few hundred residents. It was just three miles from the predominantly white town of Sumner and 48 miles from Gainesville. On New Year's Day, 1923, a white Sumner resident, Fanny Taylor, lied and said she had been assaulted by an African person. The Taylors were white, and the residents of Sumner were in near universal agreement that Fanny's assailant was black. A crowd swelled in Sumner to find the quote-unquote fugitive, some from as far away as Gainesville, where the same day the Ku Klux Klan held a high-profile parade. Over the next seven days, gangs of hundreds gathered together in drunken, murderous mobs to assault, rape, murder, and burn to the ground the once affluent town of Rosewood, Florida. The settlement itself was wiped off the map. Several buildings were set on fire just a few days after New Year's, and the mob wiped out the remainder of the town a few days later, torching 12 houses one by one. 
At the time, the Gainesville Sun reported the crowd of up to 150 people watched the dozen homes burn and a church set ablaze. Even the dogs were burned. After Jim Crow laws were lifted and lynch mob justice was no longer a mortal threat, survivors did begin to talk. So egregious were the stories of rape, murder, looting, arson, and neglect by elected officials that Florida investigated the claims in a 1993 report. That led to a law that eventually compensated then elderly victims $150,000 each and created a scholarship fund. The law, which provided $2.1 million total for the survivors, improbably made Florida one of the only states to create a reparations program for the survivors of racialized violence, placing it among federal programs that provided payments to Holocaust survivors and interned Japanese Americans. As the Uhuru movement has summed up, the Rosewood Massacre was one among many examples of white colonial terror carried out against African people in this country for over 100 years at the turn of the century. Like the burning of Tulsa, Oklahoma, any time an African community achieved a modicum of prosperity, regular white civilians banded together and crushed it violently. The white working class has historically united with the white ruling class in enforcing the colonial terror against Africans upon which the system of parasitic capitalism itself rests. This is why the United States and all white people owe reparations to African people for the history and ongoing legacy of violence, terror, slavery, rape, pillage, and mass murder that built the pedestal of wealth and opportunity from which all white people still benefit. We spoke with retired St. Louis attorney, Stephen Hanlon, who was involved in the landmark Rosewood case, representing the descendants and victims of the massacre in their legal pursuit of justice and reparations. In the 90s, uh, you were involved with the infamous case of Rosewood. Could you tell us how you became involved in the case uh, representing the victims of the Rosewood, Florida lynching and massacre? Well, uh, uh, <laughs> It was a, a kind of um, hustler type guy that called me up, a guy named Michael O. McCarthy. And he'd been to the NAACP and he'd been to uh, Morris D's up at the Southern Poverty Law Center and they'd all, and a number of others, and they'd turned him down. So uh, he called me and uh, I said, uh, I was really intrigued. Um, so I said, the first thing I want to do is, you know, we want to meet some of your clients. And because uh, he had signed him up for a movie deal. He, and he thought to make the movie, you got to have a trial and that sort of thing. So uh, I went down to Miami and I, I met Lee Ruth Bradley Davis. And she was a really fine, really fine woman. Um, solid as a rock. Um, very heavily involved in her church and a powerful woman. And then we went up to meet uh, Jacksonville, uh, meet Minnie Lee Langley. And that's when I knew that we were going to take this case. She was one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. Uh, she had been there at the front door of the uh, carrier house, a two-story house, uh, with upholstered furniture and a piano. And um, as the deputy sheriff, or the constable, I think they called him, the constable came through the door. Uh, her cousin Sylvester, she called him Cousin Sil, had his hands, his left hand, wrapped around her, 
and the gun, a sh you know, a shotgun, as I think, uh, uh, over her right shoulder. And he killed that co uh, constable coming through there. And the deputy constable came behind him and he killed him. Uh, and uh, because they were up to no good. And uh, they thought that um, uh, they thought Sylvester Carrier, uh, who's a remarkable character, uh, had assaulted this white woman. And uh, he hadn't. It had been uh, uh, the woman's white lover, and they had a fight, and she had a bruise on her face, and her husband saw it. And so she made up this story that a black man did it. And they hung one black man before they got to Sylvester. And I think they must have thought they got the wrong guy. And, and uh, well, that was it. I mean, that's when uh, the shots rang out and all those kids, there were a bunch of little kids and Minnie Lee was one of them who were running through, you know, the, 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 the woods in North Florida in a cold January night in their 90s, uh, running to escape. And uh, eventually uh, that house was burnt to the ground and so were all the other houses. And here was uh, Minnie Lee, uh, whose life was ruined. Just ruined. Um, her aunt wanted to send her to nursing school. You know, that was the plan for Minnie Lee's life. And uh, she wound up working in a brush factory for 30 years. Um, lived on the outskirts of Jacksonville in a very poor neighborhood. That's where I met her. And the company she worked for had moved to Mexico and she was getting by on uh, social security or whatever. But boy, could she tell that story. And she was a stunning witness. And when we eventually put her on in the hearing, it was, uh, you could hear a pin drop. Uh, there were, I think, over three or 400 people in the room from all over the world and press and everything from all over the world. And, uh, and then we put on three more people and they were just, just remarkable uh, witnesses. And they got to tell their story. And that was the most important thing to them. The money was uh, for the survivors now, the eight or nine survivors, the money wasn't a big, big thing to them. They gave most of it away to their church or their kids or whatever. And money was a little bit more important for the next generation, the descendants, who had really suffered. I mean, they grew up uh, terrorized. Uh, the, their parents knew that they, their parents, had been witnesses to unprosecuted crimes. So they were mm -hmm. in terror that uh, if they ever said anything about that, somebody would kill them. And uh, uh, they were terrified of white people. Uh, yeah. And uh, of course, they passed that fear on to their children, but they didn't tell the children the story um, for mm -hmm. uh, understandable reasons until there's one of their children, Arnett doctors, you know, found out about it and confronted his mother about it. And she said, not in my lifetime. Uh, and he said, well, that's the only promise I'm going to make to you is not in your lifetime. But after that, uh, this story needs to be told. And then yeah. the events that came to me. So that's how it started. And we really salute you for taking the stance that, that you did and, and helping to, to get that story. I, I know personally, hearing about the Rosewood trial after having seen the movie, um, really helped my understanding of history and, and what my role is in it. Um, could, could you speak a bit to, and, and I know, I know you, you, you already mentioned this, um, anything else that you can tell us about the outcome of the Rosewood case and 
more to the point, what do you think is the significance of this case for the larger reparations movement? Well, uh, first of all, um, uh, I call Rosewood uh, Reparations 101. Uh, it was uh, the first uh, reparations case for African-Americans. Uh, Japanese uh, who had been interned in the camps had gotten reparations in a federal statute uh, before that. And we use that as a model in a lot of ways. Um, I would say that there are a number of things. Number one, we had great professors led by um, Maxine Jones, who's a brilliant African-American woman at Florida State. And we also had professors at Florida and uh, FAMU who played a, an important role and they did a study and that's the main thing. Okay, you gotta, somebody's gotta say, articulate, you know, and, find, and verify what happened, okay? Uh, and, and then you need to talk about the significance of what happened. And why should I take this case, for instance? Uh, and aren't there a lot of other problems in 1993 that African-Americans have that we could use the resources of the state's largest law firm to uh, deal with? And uh, fortunately, uh, I had a wonderful African-American friend, uh, I, Israel Tribble, who was uh, head of the Florida Education Fund and president of the uh, Tampa uh, Chamber of Commerce. He's, he uh, died too early, uh, four, five, six years after this, after Rosewood. Uh, and uh, I went to him and I said, you know, I can, you know, uh, what do you think? Uh, my partners are asking me, you know, why this? Why not something else? It's more current. And he was crying. He was crying when I told him the story. And he said, you just gotta take that case. And I said, well, tell me what? And he said, well, my daddy died before my mama died. And then my mama died. And then I went to my mama's funeral. And when I came back from my mama's funeral, the only thing I had was a bill for the funeral. And that's not gonna happen to you, Steve, okay? And that's why you gotta take this case. So I always thought that what Ike was trying to describe to me was the problem of I'm sorry, intergenerational tr transfer of wealth for mm -hmm. African-Americans in our country. And Rosewood was a powerful story about the historic inability of African-Americans in this country to acquire capital in one generation, hold that capital, and pass that capital along intact to the next generation. And that's, I think, the significance of, of the cases. And I think that's why it had such a powerful impact on in the African-American community uh, in Florida. And I think it's its primary teaching value uh, uh, for us. That was a thriving, industrious, um, African-American town with its own church and, and its Masonic Lodge and its baseball team. And that whole thing uh, was, was destroyed. And, um, that's happened, uh, not that obviously and that directly, but you know, in financing our school systems, okay, which is a deliberately racially motivated uh, uh, and and enforced uh, scheme uh, that uh, it's a fundamental tenet of American public policy that the quality of the education that you receive will depend upon the color of your skin and your zip code. Mm -hmm. um, and 
what we, what Rosewood's teaching value is, I think, is um, if we're, if we're going to consider the question of reparations, then we have to have, in my view, um, a massive education of the American people, and particularly American white people, okay, who I would mm -hmm. consider largely, you know, functionally illiterate about the role of race uh, in our society. So I'm wow, hoping yeah. that, uh, that we can establish uh, a Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission and, uh, and adequately fund it uh, mm -hmm. and get that kind of study done so particularly we can get across to white Americans what actually happened here from mm -hmm. slavery through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through uh, apartheid, uh, mm. And I think we're still living largely yeah. uh, in apartheid. Um, and, 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 you know, the whole history of the economics uh, of that and how free labor uh, built this country. And then I think we can have a discussion about what we need to do about it. Thank I, I really appreciate you saying that, Mr. Hanlon. I, I agree, and I know that in, in the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, we think it is absolutely critical that white people understand our our role historically. That this isn't just something that um, you know that African people are are suffering these things that happen to occur to them for some reason. It's it, there's there's an active role that that we as a community and the white community play and have played. You as a, as a white person, you you are currently, if I'm not mistaken, based in St. Louis, where uh, there is the infamous, as it's known, the Delmar Divide which demonstrates the stark contrast in conditions faced in the US, one condition for the colonized and oppressed African or black community, and quite a different reality for uh, the white population. St. Louis, like most cities, as, as you had um, referred to with Rosewood, has also seen a history of state-sanctioned violence against African people from lynchings to the modern police murder of Africans like Mike Brown in 2014. And, since that time and, and the protests that we saw coming from the black community against police murder, police brutality, and systemic injustices, since then we've seen the growth of the Black Power Blueprint Project, uh, the Uhuru Movement, and the, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, which is the organization that hosts this show. And our organization is formed around the principle of uniting white people with the demand coming from the African community for reparations, that, that we understand that is in our interests and that the reparations demand that we call for in the Uhuru Solidarity Movement is one that funds the Black Power Blueprint Project and other projects that become the kernel or the blueprint for an independent African economy in the hands of the African community. Could you say a bit about your thoughts on that approach to reparations and that approach to finally uh, the, the African community be, being able to achieve an independent thriving economy in its own interests? Well, first of all, it's great work you're doing. Uh, and I really applaud you for it. And uh, we need to hear that voice uh, loud and clear. Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Mapping Decline, but it's a great book and it describes exactly in, in exclusive detail uh, what went on here in St. Louis. Uh, I was a professor, a cartologist, uh, 
from Iowa uh, who came down here and went into the Washington University uh, libraries and found the whole thing. All the records of the, I think it was a real estate firm, who basically took care of and managed the in-migration from the Great Migration up from the South and into St. Louis as Black folks came up after both wars uh, and, and white folks abandoned that city and moved out into the county. And he describes what happened when I was growing up in St. Louis in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, uh, when I knew about this thing called apartheid, and I thought it was this horrible thing that existed over in South Africa, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was growing up in an apartheid society. And he describes exactly how he got the papers, you know, that said, you know, black people go here and white people are going here and here's how the zoning and here's where the industry's going. And, uh, and virtually nobody in St. Louis has read that book, virtually nobody. So that's what I mean when I say white people are functionally illiterate. Uh, and that's why they're gonna, it's gonna take an enormous education effort because most white people in this, the, the St. Louis is called a hyper-segregated city. Mm -hmm. It's not the only one, Detroit, and you know, we can name some other ones, but this is probably the most hyper-segregated city uh, in the country. Um, uh, you, you can go for, you know, huge stretches in St. Louis County and not see anybody, I can, I don't see anybody who doesn't look like me. So it's a, but nobody here understands that, you know. Um, so how are they going to react to it until they understand it? Uh, they think, Slavery is something that was, you know, it was bad four centuries ago or whatever, you know, or two centuries ago, uh, maybe one, <laughs> one and a half, whatever, you know, uh, but that was a long time ago and that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on today. And we, now we got affirmative action and, you know, we did the 60s and we got the civil rights movement. And uh, they, of course, they don't understand that, yeah, you had the civil rights movement and what did you have after that? Well, you had the new Jim Crow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's just, destroying, destroying communities, okay? Mr. Steve Hanlon, thank you so much for joining us today on Reparations in Action. We've come to the end of our time, but we hope that we can speak with you further and continue this process of ending the illiteracy, as you call it, of our uh, fellow white citizens here in, in North America and help to make intolerable what far too many white people have considered tolerable um, with respect to the treatment of African people. Well, thank you. Thank Keep you. up the great work that you're doing. It's wonderful work that you're doing. We certainly will. All Thanks right. again for joining us. We, we hope to talk to you again soon. All right, sir. Bye now. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Reparations in Action. We want to thank Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg for giving us this hour and this platform. We want to thank attorney Steve Hanlon uh, for joining us for that incredible interview. And I want to sincerely thank and put forward the chair of the Uhura Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville, for uh, his presence on this show today and all the work that he does to make reparations in action happen. And I wanna thank all of you for tuning in to this show and finding out what you can do to support reparations to African people and the African liberation movement. My name is Jamie Simpson, your host, and uh, this has been Reparations in Action. We'll talk to you next week.